Welcome to the Reason Roundtable, your weekly podcast from the Libertarian Magazine that's going to have a webathon next week. Woohoo! It's a fo- foreshadowing. I am Matt Welch, joined by Nicholas B. Peter Suderman and Catherine Mangu Ward. Happy World Cup week, everybody. Hey, Matt. Howdy. Happy Thanksgiving week Monday. That was I posed like a question a little bit there, Mr. Suderman. We are going to get right into it. So let's get right into it. It's been uh, quite the past week for our political olds. <sighs> look at look at that one sentence, half a sentence. Look at that. that Exasperated was our political sigh. Old. After that was him. A half a sentence. You called On, him into uh, existence. Tuesday, the seventy-six. Year old former President Donald uh, John Trump, I think Jack John something, undeterred by his repudiation in the midterms, uh, announced that he'll once again be escalating, escalatoring into our lives in the 2024 uh, GOP presidential nomination round on uh, Friday. Uh, the Justice Department announced that it was appointing a special prosecutor to look into Trump's handling of classified documents uh, and also his role in the January 6th unpleasantness. On Thursday, a couple of 82-year-olds, House Speaker, he can't. Like, he just can't. Watch him. <laughs> watch him can't. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and uh, James Clyburn, who's the House Democratic whip, uh, whip, announced that they're not going to be uh, running for a re-upping for their leadership post, as uh, also is the case with 83-year-old, insert Nick Gillespie snort here, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. And then Sunday, we all celebrated as an American uh, collective the 80th birthday of our really existing president, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., uh, as Eric Bame or Bohem or whatever his name is, who works for Reason and who filled in admirably last week wrote after Pelosi's announcement, quote, America is ruled by a group of leaders who likely would have been forced into retirement long ago in a more normal profession. They're so old that rolling your eyes and dismissing them as boomers is inaccurate. Uh, We are going to zoom in and out of the individual characters referenced uh, before and the broader gerontocracy problem. But first, Catherine as uh, someone who has been uh, irrationally uh, irritated by Nancy Pelosi <laughs> your whole life. I want you to That's uh, describe, to channel, um, to throw dirt on her grave one last time. But first, I'm going to read you a Joseph Biden tweet. When I think of Nancy Pelosi, I think of dignity. <laughs> Thanks. History will <laughs> History will note her as the most consequential speaker of the House of Representatives in history. That's a good sentence. Can I read it again? History will note her as the most consequential speaker of the House of Representatives in history. She is first, last, and always for the people. America owes her a debt of gratitude for her service, patriotism, and dignity. Catherine, will you finally admit that that's true? First of all, just the the syntax of that tweet is peak like grandma text. Right. It's like the words are duplicated. If It sounds like it was done while he was driving using voice to text. You know what I mean? Which is most of the text that I receive from old people. Right. So uh, the words that the word that I think of when I think of Nancy Pelosi, it's actually three words uh, and it is jobs, jobs, jobs. Matt, that's the words. Um, I, in honor of this segment, did a search on Nancy Pelosi's website, like her house site. Um, and there are. 70 instances of jobs, <laughs> jobs, jobs together. 70. 
they refer 70 and that's just for like the current iteration of the site, which only seems to go back to like maybe 2010. Right. Um, so that's they, actually 210 instances of jobs, right? That's correct. Yeah. Well, sometimes she says it four times. Uh, so that oh, wasn't captured wow. in the data. She's mixing it up. The jobs, jobs, jobs that she has created with uh, like whatever the bill is that she's talking about at the time. Infrastructure, environmental regulation, the Lily Ledbetter law. She said it at John Murthy's <laughs> funeral. R.I.P. Rest in power. In which he she quoted him. <laughs> praising her for giving a speech on the floor that was just the words jobs jobs what <laughs> and she uh, has used it for bills that contain tax cuts she has used it for bills that contain tax increases it's she's insane none of these bills create anything like the number of jobs she has claimed for them some of them we have the benefit of hindsight now right like i can look back at a bill that was passed in you know, 2009 and say, oh, did it create the promised 4 million jobs? No, it did not. Um, this is partially because politicians don't create jobs. We've talked about that plenty of times on this podcast. And Nancy Pelosi is like the lead spokeswoman for that delusion. I think she really believed it. Uh, I do not think the American people owe her a debt of gratitude and that this is a sign of her extremely high uh, levels. Of maybe she's just a really big fan of Steve Jobs. Loves her iPhone. Honestly, that would be better. If Nancy Pelosi 70 times over the years had just been like, you know who's amazing? Steve Jobs. I would be like, you have my vote, Nancy. Musk, but Musk, that's Musk. Not what she was doing. Vote in California. Says you. You don't even vote in <laughs> other states. Peter, uh, what is your favorite of uh, Pelosi's uh, jobs, jobs, jobs bills? We all know that um, uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, we all call it Obamacare. But there is an argument to be made that it should be called Pelosi Care because it was Nancy Pelosi who uh, who managed the negotiation of the details in a lot of ways. And, and even more than that, uh, she was the one who got the votes together to get it passed and then who convinced uh, President Obama at the point that it looked like maybe it wouldn't pass at all. Maybe this whole thing was going to be a big flop and was going to be a huge uh, political problem for Democrats uh, because, you know, there was this changeover in the Senate with the Scott Brown election and just sort of a whole big mess where the thing stalled. It had got, you know, the negotiations had gone on for the better part of a year. And then like it was and we were into the next year. And it was not at all clear that the votes were there to be able to get this thing passed. And there were prominent Democratic advisors to President Obama, uh, prominent uh, you know, folks, uh, Democrats in Congress who were especially in private saying, look, look at the polling on this health care bill. It is going to kill us. Let's not do nothing, but let's just scale this back, do a sort of moderate, you know, sort of Medicaid expansion, uh, maybe, you know, just something like that. Let's not do the big enchilada. Let's not do Obamacare. And it was Pelosi who said, let's do it. I will make it happen. I will get the votes. And she was the one who whipped the votes uh, in, into place. And she was the one who convinced President Obama that it that it could be done when uh, when the conventional wisdom was that it could not be. Uh, and if you looked back to that time, the early months of 2010 before final passage, it was really very unclear. And so in one way, it is a story of how uh, how brutally effective she was as a leader. She was somebody who could put a vote together and get the votes for something that wasn't obviously going to be popular. 
In another way, it's obviously a story of someone who pushed through legislation that has, uh, I I think, not worked out very well to the point where when President Obama looked back at it uh, recently, he was basically like, well, you know, it was good, except it didn't do the things that it was supposed to do. And now we have to build on it so that it will finally do the things it was supposed to do originally. And, you know, it's also worth noting that if you go back to the 2010 midterm, which is was, was the next election after Democrats passed Obamacare. Democrats lost uh, lost control of the House, and there is pretty good social science research indicating that Obamacare was the sole reason. Now, there were a bunch of reasons why Democrats you know, sort of lost votes, but that Obamacare alone cost them uh, uh, something like 25 or 30 seats, and that was why they lost control of the House. And so in some ways, you know, Nancy Pelosi made an argument uh, and got uh, made an argument to her members and got her members to vote for something that was against their short term political interests. Nick, will you not rise to defend the outgoing House Speaker? Yeah, I want to point out that, you know, in all of the hullabaloo about her being the first female Speaker of the House, uh, they short sheeted the uh, fact that she's the only Italian American speaker. Of the oh, okay. And uh, you know, come on. Or at least, it's at least like, out, non-closeted. Yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of them are passing. They use these Anglo-Saxon names. <laughs> People like Kevin McCarthy. I think he, you know, he's pretty swarthy. Um, uh, for me, two things about Pelosi. One is that uh, when she campaigned, or in the in the two thousand eight. Um, elections in uh, 2000, yeah, I guess 2006 um, election, she was putting together a package for the Democrats to be the fiscally responsible party. She talked a lot about that. And it was really great because we were coming off of six years of uh, total profligacy by the the Bush administration and the in-power Republicans. And she talked quite openly and explicitly about how the Democratic Party was the party of fiscal responsibility and they were going to rein in out-of-control spending on both domestic and foreign affairs and things like that. And she lasted about a month and a half and then caved and started, you know, handing out pork uh, because it was seen at the time that the reason the Democrats won the House uh, was because of rural farm votes that had flipped to Democrats and things like that. And it was uh, a really shameful moment because that that could have been a moment where we, you know, as a, uh, in a consensual way uh, or a bipartisan way, the uh, the uh, government actually moved to rein in out of control spending, and it really just didn't happen. So shame on her for that and everything that's come since then. Uh, The one thing I will say about her in her defense, uh, besides the fact that it did take her 72 hours, but she did eventually get up off the floor after kneeling while wearing Kenty cloth, along with the other 80-year-olds in Congress. I think a couple of them, Clyburn, I don't know if he ever fully got up again, or they just kind of slid him off to the side. But um, um, she really did hem in AOC and the squad and the most extreme progressives in the Democratic caucus. And I don't think the next person is going to be able to do that uh, on the Democratic side. And we are, we already know, I mean, if, if we're framing this as gerontocracy versus vibrant middle age or something, Kevin McCarthy, who's likely to be the speaker, is 57. As minority leader, he could not keep Marjorie Taylor Greene's yap shut. Um, and he's also a whipping boy. He's a pool boy for Donald Trump. We're going to we're going to I think we're going to see very quickly the difference between a speaker of the House who actually is an effective leader and somebody who is a complete fucking doormat for all of the worst elements of their party. 
Um, so, you know, that will actually make us perhaps miss uh, Nancy Pelosi a little bit. There's this narrative. Well, I, I just want to note that except for in very, very specific situations, the whipping boy and the pool boy are yeah. different. Yes. Uh, it depends <laughs> on the kink. I mean, I watched the Jerry Falwell uh, Jr. uh yeah. I said that. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a couple oh. of exceptions. There is this narrative but, uh, out my... there that she has been anti-progressive and that I think is basically correct because of the way that she like you said, Nick, the way that she is hemmed in AOC and the squad. There was that great you know, cutting remark uh, that she made a couple of years ago where she referred to the Green New Deal as the Green Dream or whatever. At the same time, I think if you look at her record, it is a record of pushing Congress, pushing the Democratic Party in the direction of big government li liberalism. It is not uh, it is not a moderate Democratic record. It is just one that has resisted the most extreme progressive impulses. Which is not a, anything. I agree with you. And, you know, uh, a couple of years ago at an NYU uh, event or something, she told a student who was like, why aren't we getting single payer health care? Why aren't we getting socialized health care? And she was like, hey, Democrats are capitalists. Get over it. Um, so, you know, it may be that she is uh, as much as anything a bellwether of how far government and particularly on the Democratic side is listing towards just this, you know, kind of Cthulhu-like massive expansive blob that is just, you know, moving away from market forces. My favorite thing about Nancy Pelosi is just her kind of slightly off uncanny valley uh, attempt at having human reactions to things. Um, <clears throat> if you don't follow Kyle Donegan as a, a comedian on YouTube, I, I recommend that you do. Um, he does all kinds of crazy impersonations and his Pelosi impersonation captures that uh, particularly well. But my uh, a, a random moment uh plucked out of the ether came from the 2016 campaign. There was a moment in September of that year where Gary Johnson was polling Libertarian uh, Party uh, nominee, was uh, polling around 10% and he was sort of heading into uh, the possibly on uh, the debate stage. And so Democrats went all out, spent a lot of money uh, trying to uh, trash him. And as part of that, during the rollout of this, Nancy Pelosi said, do you think most people who have said they're going to be for the Libertarian because they like his hairstyle or whatever it is, are going to stick with that. Like the idea that people wanted Gary Johnson because his hairstyle, <laughs> it just. <laughs> I mean, she's Joe Biden. Like Pelosi and Biden are cut weirdly from the same candy cloth. cloth. And it's, it's the same candy cloth. Um, but yeah, they have, they do have It's not this that stretchy little... Lululemon stuff, is it? No, the kids these days wear that. Nancy would never. But the, you know, this little, this little teeny bit of like, maybe they're just going to say his hair or whatever. Maybe they're going to see, say, Green Dream. Maybe they're going to say Corn Pop. That, uh, like, unfortunately, the impulse to, like, to kind of appreciate that and vote for people and support politicians who are like that, in its extreme version, just gets you Donald Trump, right? But- People are more likely to be like that the older they get. Like this is at least one. It's a small part, but like this is one part of like why we are absolutely struggling under a gerontocracy is because old people just say stuff and Americans like it when their politicians just say stuff. Sometimes they like a gaffe. They love a gaffe. That is how we got Joe Biden as president in a weird way. I think that's how Nancy held on so long. 
And they don't, you know, that's why people don't like, you know, Pete Buttigieg or something. They don't like the sort of super disciplined person with their wits about them who's just trying like to do fancy. Frame, but, but when you get down to it, it's like people don't like Pete Buttigieg because he has nothing of interest to say. Right. And I don't think people are. Maybe. People. I'm not sure that's it. Nancy Pelosi yeah, doesn't have I'm, anything yeah, of interest that to say. Doesn't, that doesn't neuter. When was the last the time you were like, oh, like, good young thought, people, Nancy. I was thinking when we were, talk, we were going to be talking about gerontocracy, you know, Conrad Adenauer was like a thousand years old and when he led West Germany after World War II. And he was the guy who I, uh, you know, he was the guy who put together the German miracle because he could remember the past and he had, you know, uh, objected to the Nazis. And, he, you know, he had like five minutes of strength left in his body and he put them on the right course. So it's not necessarily age per se versus youth or anything like that. I saw a great documentary where they showed him playing bocce or, or the German version of bocce. And it was like Mr. Burns punching somebody like it, the ball like <laughs> fell on his toes, but he couldn't feel them. So it was OK. But, you know, age. Age is a problem. We need to get rid of the gerontocracy, but we also need to develop better, younger leaders because they suck. And I would argue at this point, that's the reason why we have these old fucks in place is because people like Kevin, One of my Kevin McCarthy, you know, and the young guns, they suck. Um, you know, like nobody new is coming up who can actually push these old, old people, you know, in their wheelchairs off the cliff. You're not disappointed be. by Tom Cotton's announcement that he's not running for president? I'm brokenhearted. We all I'm brokenhearted. I'm wearing black. Um, the uh, one of my favorite emergent themes on this podcast uh, over the over the years is Nick's increasing the kids these days aren't they good really for are. nothing theme. Which, like, I know you just said we need to get rid of the gerontocracy, but you just don't believe that. No, I, I, all I'm I saying is it. like, if, <laughs> you know, if you're 40 years old and you can't take Nancy Pelosi, you don't deserve. It's like the ending of the first Black Panther movie. Like if you can't beat her on that pool on the you know on the top of a cliff, you don't deserve to be Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. I, I think shots were fired across the bow of Peter Suderman there. Peter, is there something structural about the way Congress does its business that leads to uh, this so-called gerontocracy? Yeah, I mean, I think if Congress weren't deciding leadership based on a battle in front of a like green screen pool between two like rival you know uh, leaders of, of Wakanda obviously we would have better leaders younger leaders because that's, that's, that's I think that was the upshot of what Nick said no it's the two-party system it's the it's actually it is it's the the that that like it is the it is the fact that we just have two parties battling each other, uh, except not in front of the the bad green screen water effects. It's the fact that we only have two parties, and that American politics is organized around Republicans and Democrats, each trying to get to fifty one percent. That empowers. Older leaders who have experience already rather than a, a multi-party system like you have in Europe, which is why Europe is has many problems, uh, is in some ways more liberal than the United States, but they are not suffering under a gerontocracy in the same way because they have a bunch of a, a bunch of different parties that allow for younger leaders to get into politics uh, early. It, uh, also, they offer things that young people might want out of politics, right? They're sort of a, uh, more able to target their messages to people under 
under 40. And so what that does is it creates more political experience within, uh, you know, um, amongst people who are not yet, you know, 70 years old. And so what we have right now is a system in which it takes a long time to work your way up to the top of a party and to build that kind of experience. And it is relatively hostile to newcomers. Uh, so it's so Obama, you know, is is in some ways an outlier here, whereas Joe Biden and Donald Trump um, and Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democratic leadership team are are not right. I mean, the it's it is a it is a a result of uh, of the two party system uh, in some ways that we have that we have leaders who are so old um, and who are so entrenched in power. But wait, I mean, I don't think that makes sense because we had Clinton, Bush and Obama who were all extremely young. There was a generational change. And I think one is coming. And this is the last gasp of the baby boom, even if most of the people we're talking about are actually pre baby boomers. I think it's a cyclical thing. But if it was simply two parties, we would have had a gerontocracy earlier. I, I think it gets more complicated than that. And part of it is that you know, at the same time that primaries are more important than ever and you tend to nominate extreme people in, in primaries, the parties have also lost control of main messaging. Um, I mean, I just think there's a lot of different things going on here and that it can't simply be. The primary system definitely drives parties. people, drives parties towards extremism, right? Towards yeah. more uh, sort of candidates that appeal more to the base rather than I mean, the rather parties than are the less in control. The parties are less in control of what candidates get picked than probably ever in history. Um, and so you get these extreme people. And maybe it's that on the fringes, you get you know the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the AOCs, and that actually then creates within the caucus a desire for a more centrist leadership or something. I don't know. But you know, I don't know how you explain going from Clinton and Gingrich in the 90s, who were young, they were baby boomers, very, you know, very peak baby boomers. And you know, we are going to change the world. We're taking over from these old farts to they are now, you know, people older than them are in power. I don't know if you saw this tweet going around. I think it's from an Iowa uh, university law professor, but the winners of the past, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 presidential elections. Here are their uh, birth dates in order, beginning in 1992, 1946, Bill Clinton, 1946, Bill Clinton, 1946, George W. Bush, 1946, George W. Bush, and then 1942, Joe Biden. What was in the water in 1946? The next round of, uh, of oh presidents. Uh, fun fact, no president ever born in the 1930s or the 1950s or the 1960s. Okay. Just uh, throwing that out there. What, uh, Obama, you just listed him as 1960. Whatever. Um, yeah. The 61, the 60s There's don't so begin until 63. This podcast. Uh, it's like how uh, in anyways, the movies, the, okay. uh, the 1980s actually <laughs> begin with Alien <coughs> in 1979. Just like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's go specifically I'd to vote for the alley. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden. Um, this was a fun uh, headline in a New York Times piece about his age um, uh, a couple days ago. President Biden is turning 80. Experts say age is more than a number. <laughs> I think 
I, I is that sponsored uh, content by Depends or something? Uh, yeah, Cialis. Uh, I uh, I think that that I'm just guessing that headline would have read a little bit different if there was actually a red wave instead of a a red trickle, red uh, uh, fill in the blank something, uh, a red snort, exasperated sign from Nick Gillespie. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's. I mean, I think Biden would have had a lot of pressure to exit the race and to announce that he's not running for re-election. And now he's in this awkward thing. Ah, they won. It's a mandate. Here we go. Um, uh, uh, with us. Uh, Captain- he has no idea where he is. It just yeah. He thinks he's in a Twilight Zone <laughs> episode. Uh, and who's yeah, to say true. he's not? Catherine, yeah. is there any benefit of having a doddering old geezer who experts say age is more than a number uh, as president? Yeah. I mean, I'm if I'm trying to be like I'm doing the thought exercise, right? Like I'm trying to be charitable. And I think that the best answer to that is, you know, he's seen some stuff. Like if you're born in 1940, whatever, like all these guys, they have they know what crashed and burned. And I do think that that's valuable. Now, I think that like there's a the curve for acquiring that kind of here's how the world works. Here's how politics works. Knowledge. It, it you know. It's it slopes up and then it kind of flattens out, right? Like the difference between the here's how the world works, here's how the world works knowledge of an 80 year old and like a 60 year old, maybe not substantially different. But I do think there is a case for don't put the very, very young in charge. Now, very, very young in American politics is still not very young, right? I mean, we are founders and their infinite wisdom put some floors on the ages at which you could serve in various bodies. But it's. I know a lot of people in their 80s, and I think most of them would say I wouldn't be a good president. Like, not all of them. And clearly, at least one of them is out here saying he would be a good president. But, you know, as someone who recently has, like, slowed down due to bodily malfunction, like, my brain isn't as good because my knee hurts. And I think, like, everyone who's 80, their knee hurts all the time. <laughs> like, or some part of them. And that really shouldn't be discounted. Like, there is there is clearly something about being, like, at or near sort of good physical health that helps you be a good decision maker. You know, you have to be able to be at least see the top of your form in the distance. Joe Biden absolutely does not have that. And again, I think it would be one thing if there was a single outlier, but the whole system being run by 80-year-olds or 70-year-olds means that they are not they're not good at getting reality checks, right? They're all sitting around being old together and being like we're fine. Um and they're just like they're not totally fine. And I I refuse to believe that any of these people are so spectacularly better at their jobs as individuals that the slowing down of age is irrelevant. Because that's the other thing. It's basically the hubris of politicians. You know, yes, I'm not, you know, not as sharp as I once was, but I am still so much better than anyone else who wants this job that I am justified in keeping it. That is not the case. It is simply untrue that the people who currently happen to hold power are unique special snowflakes. So what American politics really needs is better lumbar support pillows. Honestly, yeah. maybe. I don't know. I'm out here definitely in favor of better orthopedic cushions these days. Um, uh, Peter, uh, one of the lines from Eric Bohem's uh, piece, uh, 
was that the average American <laughs> is now a full two decades younger than the average member of Congress, who at age 59 is a full two decades younger than the president and outgoing speaker of the House. Um, following up on Catherine's point, what is there a practical import of that? Uh, in terms of governance, uh, that, uh, that that's negative just besides having people who always have to have their comments walked back by their own press office. Is there something uh, in policy that uh, is worse than it would be because of that uh, dynamic? So the answer is yes. But before we get to that, maybe we should point out the one good thing about all of this, which is that it does uh, reflect the fact that Americans are living longer and healthier lives and that, that the people are staying are they like though? at the at the top. Yes. I mean, like in, in general, um, uh, people la- are people the are last staying couple of at years the, been pretty bad. OK, the, the last couple of years, uh, you know, notwithstanding, like overall lifespans are longer. And in particular, people are staying active, mentally engaged, fit, able to do things much later into life. This is why we see uh, this is why we see actors and even in action movies are getting much, much older. This is why, uh, you know, Disney just uh, reinstalled their previous president, Bob. Um, after two years of a different president, Bob, uh, the, the, the COVID Bob got basically got pushed out in a pretty bizarre thing for a 71 year old because the 71 year old, the, the, the old 71 year old who had quit, who had said he was out, uh, is, you know, he's like bored. He's writing a book and he's like, he's still smart and he's still the person that, uh, the Disney board thinks is going to be the most effective person in what they expect to be a trying economic time. And so there's a bunch of good news here. It is sort of built into our conversation about the gerontocracy, uh, just in terms of lifespans and, and capabilities. At the same time, the fact that we are ruled politically by people who are substantially older than the average American, right? So it's not just that, uh, that you know, the average American, they're, they're not reflecting the average American in their ages. And what that means is they are making policy in a lot of ways, or they are more inclined to make policy that benefits older people, which is part of the reason we have such a staunch defense of the, uh, of the entitlement state and the entitlement system, which is primarily about funneling a huge amount of money to seniors and seniors. Seniors are at this point in time a relatively wealthy group compared to other age cohorts, and we spend a huge, huge amount of money uh, in the federal budget just goes to Social Security and Medicare. And not just a huge amount that like, well, that's a lot. It's a huge amount that we can't afford because, as I say on this podcast, just about every single week, sometime in the next 10 or 15 years, both of those programs are going to have major trust funds go insolvent and not be able to pay their bills. And the only thing that anybody is really saying about that is, well, we're going to protect those programs. And I guess and the other side won't. But they're not really providing plans for how I to also do it. know. I mean. We have told our share of series of tubes jokes uh, over the years, but I do think it's also relevant that one of the most important questions that Congress is going to have to deal with in the next few years is Internet regulation and the regulation of online speech. And again, there are outliers, but of the septuagenarians and octogenarians that I know, they are not very clear on what is going on online. Like they have bits and pieces. They have advisors in the form of either their congressional staff or like their grandkids who are filling them in on some of it. But truly, it does not make sense to have people 
who are so much older than the American public who are using the Internet in such anomalous ways. We need more legislators on TikTok. Make the rules for the Internet. That's a bad idea. That's going to end right, bad. We're going to get. Would you rather be governed by AOC or by Mitch McConnell? I refuse to believe False that choice. those are the only two options. But those are, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I think you're just not. talking about, talking about age simply is, uh, is the wrong way to go about this. Um, because there are older people who are quite adept and knowledgeable and can bring the wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of Cthulhu-like ancient understanding of the past. A double Cthulhu And there Cthulhu are a lot of young pod. people. And there are a lot of younger people who are complete idiots about everything. Uh, and I think the real problem, and it might be, it's easier to probably to track this as gerontocracy. And I'm, I'm sick of it. Mitch McConnell is 80. Um, it's interesting that he tends not to come up in these discussions of, you know, old farts running everything. He's a problem, I think, from a libertarian perspective. He's as much of a problem as Nancy Pelosi or anybody else. But you know, it isn't simply age. It's, you know, the quality of legislation or the lack thereof. And that's, I think, where we would do best to focus uh, most of our. Energy. I do think at the. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely just like set fire to that straw yeah. man. Like, I just don't think anybody is saying it's only well, you were age, just you were just we saying, saying that you were just podcast. saying that old people but don't understand I, new technology, so they shouldn't be in charge. I said, right. I said okay, there are so exceptions, who are some of the and exceptions? I said yeah, on, on average. average. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. I think young people who have no understanding of what the FCC did, you know, or or what the phone company monopoly was like, necessarily have the wherewithal to actually govern something like the internet, um, or or don't remember the fact that the great thing about the internet is that it was ungovernable, you know, and that was like you know John Perry Barlow and other people who were stupid hippies in a lot of ways were fucking great because they were like, no, this is a new place and you don't get this at the rules. I we, think we need more of that. Energy. I, I just I think the question is whether you have a bias towards innovation and towards freedom uh, when it comes to new technology or whether you have a bias towards nostalgia and uh, sort of steady state uh, requirements, right? Like demanding that, the, that things be locked in place. And it's obviously true that some young people want things to be locked in place and they hate innovation and they hate freedom at the margin. However, I think if you are older, you are more likely to be against to be uh, to, to be biased towards nostalgia and to be biased towards. Well, I want things to be the way they always have been rather than I think the future is going to be interesting because people who are older have less future in front of them. All right. I speaking, I agree. Uh, you know, we should always be looking towards people who are interested in innovation and change and, and optimism. I don't know that age is in any way a meaningful uh, indicator of that in politics. Okay, let's stop talking about this now. Um, we're going to get to our listener email of the week here in a moment, uh, as well as yet another Webathon tease. But first, you might think you've done everything in your power to ensure your family in the case of a medical emergency, but what many of us don't realize is that health insurance alone won't always cover the full cost of, for example, an emergency medical flight. If you require air transport, even comprehensive coverage can leave you with high deductibles and copays. That's where Air Medicare Network comes in. When you sign up to become a member of the Air Medicare Network, should any such emergency arise, you will not see a bill for air medical transport when flown by a provider. Air Medicare transports more than 100,000 patients each and every year. That's about one every five minutes. This peace of mind for you and your whole family can be yours beginning at the low, low price of just $85 a year. 
Listeners to the roundtable can get gift cards with their new memberships for up to $50 through either Visa or Amazon. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash reason and use the offer code reason and start protecting your family. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. Come on. All right. Reminder to send us your succinct emails to roundtable at reason.com and check it on out. Next week, we are launching our annual Webathon fundraising drive. It's more of a fun raising drive. Uh, and as part of that, we will be doing uh, our bonus uh, Ask Me Anything, Ask Us Anything episode of the Reason Roundtable. So this is the time to start uh, collecting, hunting, gathering, and, and shooting off, emptying your holsters of uh, questions, uh, uh, putting us on the spot. It could be individual, it could be to the group uh, about uh, about us, about Reason, about Libertarians. Uh, whatever is on your mind. Um, this week's email comes uh, from Dorothy Parker. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure that's her real name, but Dorothy Parker writes, "Hi friends, I like weed." <laughs> 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 I think all the emails should start off with with three word declarations. Of what you like. I like weed. Marijuana is a wonderful drug. I don't know why we keep looking for female Viagra when it already exists. And I celebrate recent expansions of legalization. There are risks, just as there are with any drug, and there is a potential for abuse. Nonetheless, if you compare the damage done by weed with the damage done by the war on drugs, it's not even close. Amen. Unsurprisingly, I've noted an uptick in news items describing the dangers of marijuana. Yesterday, the WSJ, that's Wall Street Journal, declared uh, marijuana may hurt smokers more than cigarettes alone. The conclusion was based on the study of a whopping six marijuana-only smokers. This news trend makes me nervous. What attacks can we expect now that legalization is spreading? I'm thinking flimsy studies to convince everyone it's a major health risk from the left and stories about psychosis from the right. What do you think is the next move against illegal marijuana and how can we anticipate it? Nick, you're stoned right now. Why don't you lead us off with the answer? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, tripping balls, man. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of stuff. And it's uh, very quickly going to morph out of marijuana into the realm of psychedelics and other more potent, esoteric, and kind of uh, nervous-making uh, substances. <clears throat> um, I will link to a couple of pieces that might show up in the, uh, the show notes about how on the left, people are upset that right-wingers are interested in psychedelics to treat things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and other kinds of trauma-related uh, problems. And on the right, uh, everybody's talking about how mushrooms are terrible and it's, it's kind of a way for the left to bedazzle people and get them to sign on to turning every uh, county fair into a, burning, a regional Burning Man event. Um, if this is... Something I don't think the drug legalization movement, which has been moving forward with very little backlash. I mean, you know, we've been driving towards Baghdad with very little pushback. Um, and it's going to as it gets closer and closer to actually being a thing where marijuana is recognized at the national level and the international level and other drugs start being treated to, um, you know, legalization. Um, based on cost-benefit analyses, as well as uh, kind of calculations of whether or not a free society should allow people to choose their own intoxicants and you know use them responsibly or not, uh, there's going to be a massive pushback. So you see that the other thing I'll say um, 
is the one thing that's going to be interesting is I predict that most of the backlash is not going to come from traditional right-wing sources. You know, it's not going to be National Review um, that is leading the charge against this stuff. It's going to be center-left publications like The Atlantic and New York Magazine. New York Magazine uh, over the summer uh, uh, had a podcast as well as a story about the dangers of ketamine addiction and whatnot. You're going to see a lot of people who are center-left um, who are just freaked out by drugs because they're very establishmentarian and they're very staid and square in their lives, even if they pretend to be kind of hip and cool and things like that. So that's the place to look, the center left for the, uh, you know, the cutting edge of the anti-drug legalization movement. Catherine, uh, you are the caretaker of this fine uh, magazine and therefore have read and edited 54 years worth of uh, arguments about prohibition uh, by prohibitionists themselves. What do you uh, see as a, as a uh, uh, upcoming move by resurgent prohibitionists in the face of freedom. I think we are going to see that despite having lived through an actual, real, honest-to-God pandemic, that the CDC will not be learning its lesson and that we will be subject to a tremendous and tremendously expensive public health campaign about the dangers of marijuana use. I think that, yes, there's going to be um, scare stories in the media and that kind of thing. I think to some extent, like, fine, everybody have at it, right? Your scare stories, you know, I, I think they are largely ungrounded, but so be it. The place that I think it's more dangerous is when we have um, – we have an entity like the CDC, which is increasingly empowered to run little chunks of the economy um, and guide U.S. policy. They're going to they're going to do what they did for vaping. They're going to do what they did for obesity. I think actually the closest model to the way that we're going to see marijuana treated in the near future is going to be soda. Like, remember in the 90s when like buying a really big Coke was a threat to the republic? That's kind of where we're going to be. Assuming it gets legalized, which I think it will at the federal level, we will then have this immediate kind of, you know, the federal government giveth and the federal government taketh away as the CDC slowly and loudly loses its mind about all of the downsides of marijuana consumption, which are sometimes real, right? Like, I don't I don't mean to say just like drinking a gigantic Coke is every single day of your life is probably not a good idea. There are real downsides to marijuana use. They will be blown out of proportion by an entity funded by taxpayer dollars. Peter, what have you to add to this conversation? I think that from the right, we will mostly see politically expedient attacks linking legal weed to crime. Tom Cotton, among others, Matt's favorite young politician, uh, is already linking marijuana pardons to fears of rising crime uh, in advance of the midterm this year. Um, and from the left, I think we're going to see a different kind of um, pushback that's going to be focused on sales and profits and worries about big weed. And if you look at um, even in the, the legalization movement, sort of the uh, a bunch of the expert class that identifies as, you know, sort of left or center left has for years said, well, of course, we shouldn't be arresting people for smoking pot. On the other hand, we definitely shouldn't let anyone sell it and make a lot of money. 
And there's a real tension there. And I think that we are now we are going to see, you know, some allowance um, for for uh, for sales and for profit making. But it's but there will be a lot of attempts to limit it. And along with those attempts to limit profit making, they're going to attempt to restrict new products. And they're going to say, oh, wait. You can only sell this kind of joint that's regulated in this kind of way or brownies that are, you know, five milligrams and no more. And there's just going to be all of this sort of bureaucratic red tape associated with being in the weed business. And that is mostly going to come from the left, except, of course, when the left brings on allies on the right who are just trying to use that to stop weed sales and to stop it from growing. My prediction is not a prediction. It's a description of the reality around me here in Brooklyn, New York, which is to say there's uh, some kind of conflation or intersection is better uh, between uh, vaping, uh, kids and weed uh, and also the sense and the reality of public disorder um, that is going to absolutely generate changes in policy or public attitudes, at least on a local level. Uh, what I mean is that vaping has all kinds of uh, strange, it's a gray market everywhere, and it's also a cash market as a result of its grayness. And so from uh, cops who I'm conversant with in New York, they say, well, you know, kids and also gangs know uh, where to have an easy little heist is of uh, the money hanging around vape stores, which are everywhere. All the bodegas are, are vape stores now. It's, it's amazing the conversion of so much just more sort of street retail into vaping. And also you smell pot uh, everywhere. And, and oftentimes you smell pot uh, because you see uh, teenagers who are clearly underage uh, just vaping weed uh, in public, um, which is something that you just did not see. Park right around uh, across the street from me um, has had this for a while. And everybody in the neighborhood is talking about it and like uh, somewhat freaked out about it. This is easier to notice in a big city than it is in other places. Um, but I think you will s start to see people making uh, uh, conversations about, oh, you know, if, if, a 16-year-old's uh, brain gets warped, their, uh, their growth gets stunted if they smoke pot, and it leads to all kinds of other kinds of things. And it's, um, it's going to be part of the ongoing and, and like uh, uh, measurable, uh, in terms of politics, backlash against uh, um, you know, the small tiptoeing criminal justice reforms in New York um, in the face of perceived disorder and rising crime. It'll definitely be part of that. So wherever there is a legalization regime that has led to kind of kids openly flouting what used to be uh, uh, enforced laws, um, you're going to see, a, I think, a political and policy backlash is my prediction. One of the uh, things, Matt, about New York that is unique in particular is uh, that it's legal to smoke weed in the open, uh, which other states did not do when they passed legalization. Uh, if you watch New York over the next six to eight, 12 months, when the retail rules come out and the licenses for retail shops, which have been taking forever because of a lot of stupid politics, when those come out and hit New York in this sense, even though it took forever to legalize weed, um, that framework may well kind of tell the future of the story because there's everything you're talking about is absolutely true. Um, and it's legal because you can smoke weed legally in, in New York, which is why you smell it more here than you do in LA or in DC or in Colorado or Washington state. All right. We've been talking about uh, old people running for president and doing other kind of stuff. We haven't really talked about uh, Donald Trump. He had a busy week last week. Uh, we don't have a ton of time to talk about it. So we should kind of go lightning roundish. He, uh, as I said before, 
announced his candidacy for president. There's been a lot of people <clears throat> who used to be his allies, used to be his whipping boys, not pool boys like Paul Ryan, uh, but also uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, Mike Pence, just everybody named Mike um, uh, has been coming out and saying, okay, it's enough is enough. Chris Christie gave a big speech. Um, and so there's the battle lines are being, uh, I mean, Chris Christie and big in a sentence, um, the, the battle lines being drawn, etc. You guys were here for it. I was out of the country. Um, what do you make? I find that very, uh, interesting. Yeah. We're out of the country. Yep. Uh, what do you, uh, make of Trump's big last week, even in the face of getting his hat handed to him by extension in the midterms, Catherine, why don't you lead us off with our, uh, putative would be gerontocrat in chief. Yeah, I guess my lightning round thought is um, this idea that somehow the results of the midterms might determine what Trump was going to do <laughs> is just the latest in a series of delusions on the part of the uh, political chattering class that this one, this thing, this is the thing that's going to finally eliminate Donald Trump from our politics. There is no thing. He will not be eliminated. He will be in our politics. He will be our politics. Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, just more of same. He's back. We're going to do this again. Um, Nick, how do you solve a problem like Donald Trump in this in the following sense? Uh, even if he is no longer uh, able to get 47% of the electorate to support him. He could probably get 40 now or, you know, 35, but those 35 are with him. Um, uh, what does that say? What, what does that, uh, 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 worry you about, uh, in the immediate future for the Republican party for the country? Well, I, obviously I don't really care about the future of the Republican party, uh, except as it impacts my future and everybody on this podcast future and good reason readers and whatnot. Um, I interviewed Robert Draper, the, uh, New York times, uh, writer whose new book is called weapons of mass delusion. Our interview will be coming out, I think next week. Um, he makes a very salient point about Donald Trump's followers is that they have never been particularly popular within the Republican Party. They've never been a majority. So it doesn't matter. You're exactly right, Matt, that this is a hardcore band of kind of like, you know, suicide Gurkhas. They don't fucking care. Um, and Trump's support within the party could be 25% and they are still going to light everything on fire. So I think Catherine's right. He's not going away. And I think that there's a you know, when you look at people like Kevin McCarthy, you know, who represents kind of now the establishment of the party, um, he is terrified of Trump. He has shown over the past several years that he will do anything to curry favor or, or not get too in Dutch with Trump. I think what you see is a Republican Party that is too afraid of Donald Trump to decisively move to shun him, even even if it seems to be electorally powerful. I think the uh, what what Donald Trump's actual genius was is showing that the Republican Party has no principles left that it is willing to stand by and fight for. Um, and as a result, they will go down with Trump until he finally gives up the ghost. And what that means, I don't know. But um, I think Trump is in it and he will drag the Republicans down with him. And more importantly, he will drag down political discourse. Um, I don't think the Democrats are going to be offering any kind of good alternative or anything. But like Trump, to the extent that it's, he, he is pulling the one party that in the past 
has shown some libertarian sensibilities towards an open society, towards open borders and open economy uh, and things like that, you know, it's it's really not good. Peter, what's your uh, terse take on Trump's uh, eventful week? You know how people sometimes retweet a tweet, just like any tweet, and then they just add, I am so tired. <laughs> I am so tired. Do the work. I, mean, I think Nick's, Nick's right. Like the way to defeat him is to defeat him. And a big question is whether he's going to face a big divided field like he did in 2016 or whether he will face a single clear rival, likely Ron DeSantis um, here. And I just think that the the current state of the Republican Party, the Trump entry, really shows that the GOP does not have a strong center of gravity. There's no strong leadership there, no sort of even clear, clear ideological direction. Um, and Trump has exploited that. Um, he's the closest thing there is to a center of gravity there, but he's actually relatively weak um, a as a leader. And uh, he's always been weak, right? He won the primary in 2016, in part because of the big crowded field. And he beat Hillary Clinton in part because people really, really, really hated Hillary Clinton and were tired of the Clinton's stranglehold on uh, Democratic Party politics and national politics. And so to me, you know, the, the sort of the, the question here is whether Trump is going to be able to exploit a weak field again or not. And I don't know the answer. There's already a bunch of reports about a, a bunch of people gonna, who are, who are going to try and jump in and, and beat him. Um, and I think that that could end up being maybe not the best thing for the Republican Party, or at least a Republican Party that wants to beat Trump. All right. Um, let's get to our end of podcast, what we have been consuming in the artistic and cultural uh, sphere. Uh, Catherine, why don't you lead us off? I read the novel Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. Um, it was recommended by our listeners. I'm still working through those recs, and so I appreciate it. Um, it's pretty good. It's a book about violin virtuosos and space travel and pandemics and donuts and the devil. It's good. And uh, it's one of these books that you spend a little bit longer than is perhaps ideal uh, disoriented, you know, in those first uh, few pages. And then uh, once you're in it, you're in it. It has the uh, the same vibes as Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, so if you liked that movie, Everything Everywhere, did I say that right? If you like that movie, uh, you would probably like this book. Um, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Light from Uncommon Stars. Nick Gillespie, what have you consumed? Yeah, my uh, consumption was on the Roku channel, a weird The Al Yankovic story, a, oh. a fake biopic uh, directed by Eric Appel, um, who has a bunch of roots in Funny or Die. Um, this uh, stars Daniel Radcliffe, uh, you know, Harry Potter as Weird Al, and it is a phenomenal movie. Highly, highly recommended both. I love the movie itself and the fact that it's on the Roku channel, which is, you know, just another sign that we have reached a proliferation of cultural source. I mean, there's so much great stuff out there coming at you from every direction. I'll just focus on there's one scene where uh, Rain Wilson, the guy from The Office, plays Dr. Demento, who is kind of Weird Al Yankovic's mentor, and he's having a barbecue. Uh, and it's a bunch of celebrities there, including uh, Conan O'Brien plays Andy Warhol in a tre tremendous turn of events. Weird Al Yankovic is in this movie as one of the Scotty Brothers, which is the shitty record label that produced, uh, that released a bunch of Weird Al's early um, records and things like that. 
but Jack Black shows up as Wolfman Jack. And this scene is as funny as anything that has been committed to video or film in the past 50 years. Highly, highly recommend Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And it is great because it has no bearing on reality whatsoever, past, present, or future, and ends with one of the greatest endings of any fake biopic of all time. Just highly recommend it. Get a Roku stick or sign up for the Roku channel. Whatever you have to do, watch Weird, the, uh, the, Al, uh, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. Uh, that I can't wait uh, to watch. As someone who grew up listening to Dr. Dementor, I yeah. remember when uh, Al Yankovic was like making his uh, his great debut along with... Uh, it's so good. And Weird Al is one of the... I mean, he is a true genius whose career, you know, is like in its fifth decade now or something. It's, he's like lasted longer than virtually any single person he parodied. He's There's the upside of Madonna the gerontocracy. He, yeah, you know, he... I mean, it's like and he's still going strong as this movie shows. It's like really, really good. Uh, fun, fa fun fact... Uh, uh, who, uh, among uh, reasons most uh, uh, beloved uh, and long uh, service, long serving gerontocracy uh, staff, uh, is a huge uh, Al Yankovic fan? Bob Poole. Bob Poole is a huge Al Yankovic fan. I don't think I'm giving away state secrets. Makes sense. Um, but uh, a man of taste. It all comes together. Uh, Peter Suderman, what have you consumed? I have been reading the giant, lavish coffee table book. Campari and the cinema. You know what it's about? It's about Campari and the cinema. So Campari, of course, is the Italian red bitter liqueur that is a, or maybe even arguably the essential ingredient in a Negroni or a Boulevardier, as well as many popular variations and offshoots. Uh, and Campari has a long history of intersection with the movies, including like a 1984 TV commercial that you can watch on YouTube directed by Fellini. By Fellini, the guy who directed Eight and a Half, one of the great movies about movies. Uh, there's also like a recent short film uh, starring Clive Owen as like maybe a murderer or a bartender or something. There's a lot of Negronis involved. Um, uh, also, incidentally, there's a whole scene built around Negronis in the most in the recent Uncharted film starring that it's a video game adaptation starring Tom Holland and Marky Mark Wahlberg in which Tom Holland plays a bartender who is also sort of an Indiana Jones kind of uh, adventurer. And at one point, he gives a history of the Negroni, um, a history that is sort of has been widely accepted, but is in dispute these days amongst cocktail historians who now believe that it wasn't Count Negroni who invented it, but it, that the drink was actually invented in Africa. Anyway, as a fan of both movies and Negronis, um, I'm really enjoying the book. It's a great celebration of two things I love. So I spent last week on a junket in uh, Israel, the Holy Land. Uh, which I'd never been to, never been to the Middle East, uh, completely uh, um, ignorant of such things. And so had a pretty wonderful time and saw a lot of of various things. One I will recommend, um, partly because I had no idea that it existed. And if you find yourself in Israel, which I do recommend people um, travel to, it's pretty amazing uh, to see uh, such history, if nothing else, um, is a an archaeological site uh, called City of David. <clears throat> it's um so the, uh, Jerusalem uh, sort of famously has uh, an old city. It's up on a hill, um, which is obviously described as a mountain back then because they didn't know. Um, and uh, it's got walls and such. And uh, but uh, since the place has been inhabited forever and just constantly ransacked and besieged and 
and, and crusaded and God knows what, uh, literally, um, for a long time. Uh, people just keep building on top of whatever they just recently um, destroyed. And so when the Brits controlled British Palestine, um, they wanted to do some digging, see what was underneath all of it. And there was an archaeologist who was looking at the Bible and uh, the Old Testament and noticing that the physical descriptions didn't make that much sense of just where the, the hills were located, the mountains and the river. And there's a, a, a key scene where David, you know, David, um, like uh, crawls up uh, a, a water a shoot of some sort of water tunnel and it didn't it wouldn't make sense to be in the old walled city and so they started digging in what is east jerusalem uh, 120 some odd years ago and started um di discovering things old walls um and and developed the thesis that um here was the uh, actual site of the original city of jerusalem as described in the uh, Old Testament and the ancient Hebrew stuff, um, there wasn't a lot of digging that happened until uh, recently. That's the kind of crazy thing. Um, it's East it's East Jerusalem, so Israel only uh, gets control over it uh, after the Six Day War, nineteen sixty seven, and so it's an ongoing dig, and uh, it's just kind of spectacular to go. You get to um, go and stand on what is the highest ground of that area where they've kind of now remapped out where the old walled city used to be. And it's, again, not where the current one is. And, um, you know, with a tour guide, you flip open and you read a psalm written by David, like I actually wrote it. Uh, and he's describing physically what you're looking at um, and the vantage point of what you're looking at. Um, they have found, uh, and it's, it's a controversial site as everything is controversial in, um, in Israel in general, in Jerusalem specifically. Um, people are uh, uh, there's disputes over how much they're kind of trying to do wish fulfillment archaeology for the state of Israel, for Judaism. Um, and an interesting part of it is that uh, Christians are all in too. If you go online and, and like do a YouTube search of City of David, you'll find a really crappy 2015 documentary with like this uh, uh, this canary coat wearing really fat American Midwestern pastor of some sort saying, you know, the Bible is the literal truth, every word. And he's standing next to the the Israeli guy with the yarmulke on, um, who's uh, the head of the archaeology of it. He's just sort of like sitting there and awkwardly nodding um, as uh, they talk about the uh, uh, of the digs. But they found this amazing stuff, including recently um, or semi-recently, um, sealed scrolls that they only unsealed now um, that reference the names um, as they were um, uh, uh, talking about in the Bible. There's a story about Jeremiah who they threw in a well because he was a pain in the ass or something. Um, and uh, and in the in the uh, in the Old Testament, they say that this person, son of that person, and also this person, son of that person, were the ones who like uh, accompanying him to the cistern. And um, and they found these sealed things and they unsealed them. And on the stone tablet, it was the same, this person, son of that person, um, like with the orders to, it's crazy, right? Um, it's just kind of crazy and blows your mind. And I'd never heard of it before. And it's really interesting. I uh, recommend go checking it out. The City of David um, Museum, archaeological uh, dig. Um, lots of stuff in Israel is very interesting and in Jerusalem in particular. Uh, but this will, uh, if you're as ignorant as me, which is hard to do, you have to work at it. Um, uh, it uh, will, uh, it'll pop open your eyes and it doesn't immediately come to mind as much as some of the other classical places to look at. A 
men people. All right. We're going to have a webathon next week. Again, please send us your emails. Uh, ask us anything at roundtable at reason.com and get ready to loosen up all of that extra FTX stock or whatever. Um, no, please don't oh, give us that. We don't that. want that. Okay. I thought it was like a bargain now. Or I don't understand how anything works. Um, but we'll be talking about that a lot more on uh, next Monday's episode. And we'll be taping in the middle of the week um, uh, on Wednesday on the uh, bonus Ask Us Anything. Um, so just get ready for all that stuff. You can follow all of our podcasts at reason.com slash podcasts, including the Reason interview with Nick Gillespie and also his Speakeasy uh, series. Uh, Nick, is there any speaking easily that you're doing in the near future yeah. that you want to talk about? There's uh, one coming up in New York on Thursday, December 1st uh, with Caitlin Bailey, who runs a, a sex worker activist group that seeks to destigmatize and decriminalize sex work called Old Pros Online. Uh, go to reason.com slash events and you can get information. And buy tickets, $10 gets you into the event, which includes beer, wine, soda, and food, as well as stimulating conversation. Great. All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening and get ready for exciting fundraising. All right, goodbye.